So between snow days and holidays and our teaching on the advent of Christ, it seems like it's been about a month since we've been here. So let's pick up where we left off and read our passage beginning in verse 3, if you would. And so open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can read whatever one that you memorize and read every day. Uh, and I'll give you some verse cues to stick together. If you want to have the same version I'm reading from, you can find that in the chairs around you. Verse 3 picks up and says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, verse 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake, verse 6, for God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Verse 10, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Verse 11, for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you, but having the same spirit of faith, according to what's written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe. Therefore, we also speak. Verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Verse 15. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, verse 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, verse 18, for while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let's stop right there. Let's pray. Would you bow with me? Lord, we thank you today for the fun time we had worshiping you. Our desire really is to come into fellowship with you and just do today what we really have been doing all through the week, which is reading your word and seeking you in prayer and worshiping you and thanking you for the things that you've done. So we just want you to continue to do that with us today corporately. And Father, I pray that you'll guide us as we look at your words today to us through the Apostle Paul, that we might understand what you would have us to understand and come away with an application that you would have us apply to guard us from uh, any stray away from uh, what the true text says and just teach your word clearly, plainly, uh, that we might grow accordingly. For we were made for this word, Father. You made us to be ministered to by it, to be completed through it. And so we pray for, for that end today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've worked our way through uh, this, the early verses of this section, we've begun to see some keys so we've just labeled this Keys to Lasting Ministry, and so we begin to pick out those keys. And you can have, if you're a note taker on the back of your bulletin today, you can see some notes there. And over uh, the time that we are teaching today, you'll see some takeaways underlined on the screen behind me. And so those are for you to, to, uh, to ponder on later, if you will, and to understand these are the keys for us today to come away with what the Lord perhaps would have us to know. But as we've gone through, we've seen some keys to the steadfastness of Paul. Uh, that Paul also brought to his ministry. He has, again, revealed his own heart as he communicates to us how, uh, in the middle of all types of difficulty, he's been able to have lasting ministry. And we laid a lot of that foundation early on, the difficulties Paul had, uh, the hardship that he had to endure, and we'll see more of that as we work our three way through this second letter. And in the middle of whatever hardship and whatever discouragement and, uh, he, he had to deal with, he was able to say uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, 1, Therefore, uh, since we have this ministry... We, as we have received mercy, he's able to say, we don't lose heart. So really, the question is, how do you go through the difficult things that Paul went through? How do you have a life that perhaps is uh, less than perhaps you would expect, or maybe that you hoped, or perhaps it has some hardship or things, uh, or speed bumps brought into your life that you didn't expect to happen? How, do you, how are you able to deal with those kinds of things? 
have lasting ministry and fulfilled life in the middle of that and say, we don't lose heart. And so I think it's obvious that these keys are important to the church, uh, just like they were in this first century, they are still important now as we aspire to have lasting ministry. And we all desire to have really a fulfilled life as we get to the end. And as we noted five of them so far, let's just review them very quickly. The first one was based in 2 Corinthians 4.1. Paul says, therefore, since we have this ministry, it's what he starts with here, since we have this ministry. So our key was knowing the validity of your calling. You have a ministry. You've been equipped to do a certain thing. And what is it that the Lord has made us adequate to do? Well, be ministers of the new covenant. There's a missionary to Africa told the story of an elderly woman who was reached with the gospel. Though she was blind and she could neither read nor write, she wanted to share her newfound faith with others. She went to the missionary. She asked for a copy of the Bible in French. And when she got it, she asked the missionary to underline John 3.16 in red and mark the page where it was so she could find it. And so the missionary was curious about all of this because she could neither read nor write uh, or see. And so he wanted to know what she was going to do, so he followed her. In the afternoon, just before school let out, she would make her way to the front door of the school, and as the boys came out, she would ask them if they could read French. And when they said yes, she would ask them to read the verse that was marked in red. And so she would ask, do you know what this means? And then tell them about Christ. And over the course of time, of course, many young men came to faith, and many more came and became uh, particulars in the ministry and, and became pastors and those kinds of things. See, she understood what her calling was, the validity of her calling. She, she had some limitations in her life. She understood uh, that she couldn't read, she could neither see uh, nor write, but she knew what the calling was, and the missionary uh, helped her to fulfill that calling just by underlining the passage that was key for her to give out the gospel. And so, you know, you, you've been equipped uh, to do your calling, and there is great fulfillment in just pursuing that. Now, you have to take care of your family, of course. You have to do the things that allow you to live in this world. These are things that you don't forsake. You know, Matthew 6 tells us, Seek ye first, though, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things are added to you. The Lord knows what you need. But you've been equipped to do uh, a ministry. And Paul, said, Paul starts with that. He says, Fulfilled life, uh, lasting ministry starts with the understanding of what your main calling is. And we've, over this last year, we've helped you to understand how to do that. We're going to continue to do that in this, in this year to come so that you feel confident in doing those things. The next key we saw was really in the next four English words is as we received mercy. So keys to lasting ministry, keys to a fulfilled life. This is this mercy understanding. And that's pretty profound, I think, as we looked at that. We can bear up, if we understand that we've received mercy, that we really didn't deserve anything that we have, that what we deserved was judgment, Paul said, but what we received instead was mercy, then we can really bear up under any burden of, or hardship if we understand that what we really deserved, and if we understand what his grace has provided, and we know what our ministry is, then we don't lose heart, right? So uh, regardless of what the world may bring, what people may bring to us, when he was appointed the pastor of the church in Cambridge, Cambridge England, 1783, Charles Simeon was delighted. The people of the church less so. How many times has that been repeated over and over through the history of the church? They didn't share in his joy, and many of the prominent uh, members of the church opposed his convictions on reading, reaching the lost with the gospel. So to show their displeasure, they locked their pew boxes during the service and left them empty. How many know that back during that time, people uh, purchased pews to sit in? Well, they purchased them by giving a certain amount, and that became their their specific pew, okay? So, so, you know, you're a little justified when you come in, somebody's sitting in your seat right now, okay? Because, that, I mean, that throws back to the history of the church. Hey, you're sitting in my seat. Well, they actually had seats assigned, and they had purchased those things, and they could lock those pew boxes. And the church that I pastored up in New York actually had those original pews from that time period, and you could see where there used to be doors. So this is not unusual. So they would lock their pew boxes. They didn't like them. They wouldn't come, but they wouldn't let anybody sit in their, in their chairs. So that was the whole idea. So... Obviously, Simeon's a little discouraged, but eventually God began to do a work there, and Simeon's ministry had some powerful influence on the nation of England on, and on his emphasis on missions. But during the dark days of the opposition to his ministry, he wrote, quote, In this state of things, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. It was painful indeed, he says, to see the church, with the exception of the aisles, almost forsaken. So the aisles are filled, the pews not so, because they're locked. But I thought that, he says, if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation that did attend, there would be, on the whole, as much good done as if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited to only half the amount. So 
that's a great way to look at on the positive side. Lord, just double the blessing to those who come, and that'll be more effective than if the church was full and it was half the blessing. So he says, quote, this comforted me for many, many times when without such a reflection I should have sunk under my burden. And I guess the thought is, you know, opposition doesn't mean that we're doing things wrong. Often it's evident that we're doing things right if we allow ourselves to be really deterred from doing anything until we have complete approval it's certain we're not going to ever accomplish anything of value rather being discouraged by opposition we should take comfort in God's faithfulness and keep on doing what's right because you know Simeon understood that everything the good that we has is mercy anyway all right he wasn't discouraged because people were rejecting his message uh, in the church he realized that you know he really didn't amount to anything anyway and he just asked the Lord to do the work and bless those who came and so you see this reflected over and over. This is not unusual that people are pulling out these uh, very important points from the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 4.2, we saw this next key to lasting ministry. 2 Corinthians 4.2 says, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Key to lasting ministry, we saw. We spent some time here because it's so important and so, I think, uh, applicable to our lives now. Key to lasting ministry and a fulfilled life is learning how to win the spiritual battles with temptation and sin on the inside over the long haul. And I told you before, a couple of weeks ago, you know, um, given enough time, the truth comes out. I mean, you can, you can keep up the charade for a little while, or maybe a good while into your life, but eventually who you really are is going to be exposed. And we see that over and over again. And that shouldn't, that shouldn't scare you that all of a sudden somebody's going to find out who I really am. What it should be making you do is take a look at who you really are on the inside, and then doing exactly what the apostle says, renounce the things hidden because of shame. And the idea there is this. Learning how to win that spiritual battle. That renouncing those things that would, if they were exposed, would bring shame to you. So you don't want them exposed and you don't want to tell anybody about them. So you go to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me for those things. I don't want to do this anymore. And continually having that discussion with the Lord and continually bringing those things before him and saying, I'm renouncing these things. I don't want to be this way. And the great preacher F.B. Meyer once asked D.L. Moody, he says, what's the secret of your success? And Moody replies this way. And I use Moody a lot because there's a number of things uh, in faithfulness to ministry, we can certainly see uh, those things in his life and starting in very small ways, how he was faithful, uh, you know, under great pressure and under very small amounts of people. But Moody replies this way, quote, for many years, I've never given an address without the conscience awareness that the Lord may come before I finished, end quote. That's pretty good, right? I mean, if you're doing your ministry, as you're out um, ministering to people, uh, an awareness of holiness, an awareness of the presence of God, an awareness of an accountability that the Lord knows who you are on the inside, that he, through Paul's heart, revealing, saying, hey, I'm renouncing the hidden things because of shame, and knowing that you can be doing that, renouncing the hidden things because of shame. And so this is just an active process, see? And, you know, that's where you want to throw your hat, in with people who are consistently winning the spiritual battle with temptation and sin on the inside over the long haul, taking captive thoughts. You know, you're in charge of those thoughts. Did you know that? I mean, those things that are pro being processed in your mind, you're in charge of that, and you can take captive those things. And the Lord of Spirit specifically says, definitely take captive those thoughts. So that's the idea. The reference is, you know, inner thoughts that if revealed would bring shame, unrenounced private matters, see? and patterns of behavior that would embarrass us if they're revealed, and they're not the pathway of lasting ministry, and they're not the pathway of fulfillment. And given enough time, that truth is going to come out, and this is a constant battle, and we need to keep waging that battle to be able to say at the end of your life, you know, lasting ministry, fulfilled life, that's where you arrived, see, because this is part of that process. Then we marked out our next key to lasting ministry, these words, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. And, and this is really presented from the negative. This is how you don't want to do ministry. So the key was we're not to use the word of God in such a way as to sell it or to accomplish some goal in ministry by manipulating people. We're going to see that again. Paul's going to mention something like that in just a little bit. In fact, instead of using the word of God, we're to teach the word of God. And there's a difference. You understand that, right? Uh, it's very popular today to use the word of God. That just means that you want to say something. And so you go through the word of God until you find something that seems to relate to what you want to say. And then you go ahead and say what you want to say, and then you just use the word to proof text it. That's called using the word of God. That's not the same as teaching the word of God, okay? Paul says we're supposed to teach the word of God. That's what he says. He says what? Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by what? The manifestation of the truth. We're to back to the positive now. This is how you want to do ministry, see? We're to be relentless, and here's the key, 
to faithfully presenting scriptural truth clearly and plainly over the long haul. So as you think about the ministry that you do with that little class or with the big class or whoever it is, small group, whatever it is, relentlessly, faithfully presenting scriptural truth clearly and plainly over the long haul. You don't have to come up with some, some pithy saying and you don't have to lead with some kind of video to somehow enhance what you're going to say. You don't have to do any of that beloved. You don't have to come up some creative way to capture some part of the Word of God. You just have to present the Word of God clearly and faithfully and plainly over the long haul. See, when I say plainly, I don't mean like, oh, put everybody to sleep. I mean, the Word of God is, is, is living and active, and if you just present it, it goes to work, okay? When you try to do it yourself, you're having some problems, okay? You're not supposed to manipulate it. We're not supposed to, you know, we're not supposed to adulterate it. Not supposed to be crafty about it. Okay, all those things are forbidden ways to present the Word of God, see? It's the it's biblical ministry is supposed to look like this, see? Faithfully presenting scriptural truth clearly and plainly over the long haul. Just go verse by verse by verse by verse. In context, with the thoughts that the original writer had, what did it mean to the people who heard it the first time? Because that's what it still means now. Not what does it mean to me. It's not subjective. What if you didn't exist? That's what it still means, see? Whatever it meant without you is what it still means now. Now, there are applications for you, and the Lord brings you through certain circumstances. You realize there's some applications there. But also remember that all the, God, all the promises of God are true, but they're not all for you, okay? Some of them were for some other people in other contexts at different time periods, okay? So just plainly presenting Faithfully, the word of God clearly over the long haul. That's what the Lord wants us to do. And so it's, it's unadulterated. It's unmanipulated. We looked at all those words in different parts of scripture that we, we pulled in that say the same types of things. Unpeddled. And the scriptures are where we find sound doctrine. And by that, notice he says, so he says, but, but by the manifestation of truth, and then by doing that, look at the next part, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So he's showing the church his heart. So Paul says, you know, in other words, if you think about it, Paul says, the way I conducted my ministry among you was by actively presenting the truth. And your conscience knows that that's true. See, Paul says, in everything we've done, our conscience has agreed with us. And we looked at that early in chapter two. Remember, Paul talks about his conscience and it doesn't convict him. Um, he says, listen, I've done this faithfully over the long haul. So my conscience is clear. I've done it precisely what I'm supposed to do, presenting this word of God clearly, faithfully over the long haul. And, and our conscience agrees with us. It's fully informed by the word of God. And, and beloved, when you do ministry this way, it allows the ministry you do to stand up to the scrutiny of our most important audience. And that's that last part, commending ourselves to every man's conscience. What's the last part? In the sight of God. Our number one audience is what? What God thinks about what we're doing. And he's already said what he wants us to do. So you'll already know what he thinks about what you're doing, depending on what you're doing with the word of God. Okay? So that's pretty straightforward, I think. And you've probably heard this story, but it's worth repeating. Adoniram Judson, you perhaps know that name. He labored it faithfully in Burma for 18 years without a furlough. So... He was just there in a very difficult time period uh, where he uh, just stayed in a very uncomfortable place with lots of disease and difficulty and many, many hardships in the 1800s in a uh, very hot, sticky environment. 18 years. And for the first six years, beloved, he didn't have a single Burmese con a convert. Did you know that? First six years he's there, not a single person came to faith. Buddhism was rampant there. The government was against uh, him being there. He said during that time, quote, I never saw a ship leave Burma without wanting to board it and go home. When his wife became sick, she had to go home for two years without him. She eventually passed away because of her sickness and illness. He wrote, quote, Oh, that I could find some quiet resting place on earth where I could spend the rest of my days in peace and perform the ordinary services of religion, quote. But then he wrote this, life is very short, and happiness and fulfillment do not consist in outward circumstances. Millions of Burmese are perishing, and I am almost the only person on earth who has attained their language to communicate salvation, end quote. In the predominantly Buddhist Burma, he determined he was gonna translate the entire Bible into the Burmese language and preach the gospel, not anti-Buddhism. Isn't that great? 
what was he going to do? He was just going to relentlessly, faithfully present the scriptural truth clearly and plainly over the long haul. He wasn't trying to manipulate it. He wasn't trying to target some certain group. He just, I'm just going to give the gospel out. I'm going to preach the gospel clearly. I'm going to do that faithfully over the long haul. I'm going to just trust the Lord to do his work. The first believer was baptized in 1819. And there were 18 believers by 1822. It took Judson 12 years of ministry to see 18 converts. 12 years. When Judson began his, his mission in Burma, he set a goal of translating the Bible and founding a church of 100 members before his death. By the time of his death, and that was after he'd come back to the U.S. for severe health problems and then had gone, the doctors had said, you need a sea voyage to help you with all the problems that you had. And on that sea voyage, he passed away. So he was gone from Burma at the time of his death. But by the time of his death, he'd accomplished those goals and more. He left the translated Bible as well as a half-completed Burmese to English dictionary, 100 churches, and 8,000 believers. He never knew that. He didn't know the, the success of the ministry or the seeds that he planted. Lost most of his children in Burma, lost his wife to illness. But yet we do not lose hope. That's a, that's a consistent theme, isn't it? Because there's more than just the circumstances that immediately surround us, right? Justin knew one of the keys to the lasting ministry, the clear, open exposition of the truth, commending himself to every man's conscience. And he also understood the validity of his calling and that everything he had was mercy, see? You can, you can withstand a whole bunch of stuff if you realize that it's all mercy, right? The next person who insults you, the next person who falsely accuses you, attacks you, whatever it is, understand that you really just deserve judgment. And so you can forgive, can't you? Because it's all mercy, Right? And through much difficulty and unbelievable hardship and sorrow, he persevered. He knew as every believer should. Look at verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And we mark really our next key to lasting ministry and a fulfilled life. And again, this is from the negative. The sixth key to lasting ministry fulfilled life is really a bold witness. A bold witness. If our gospel's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In other words, if you don't have a bold witness, um, the people who are not going to see it are the ones who really need it the most. See. Just make the gospel clear by what you say and how you live. It's a very simple, it's a very simple strategy, isn't it? to lasting ministry and a fulfilled life. Just make it very clear. And now we're going to look at this more closely in a moment, but verse 4 makes, makes it clear that bringing someone to salvation, I, I want you to understand this before we move on, is really out of our hands, right? I mean, I mean, Judson, you know, he certainly understood that. Bringing someone to salvation is completely out of his hands. If it was all up to labor, it was all dependent on about how hard you worked, then everybody would be successful who worked hard, Right? And Judson obviously worked hard, and if it was all up to just labor and just what he did, then obviously he would have been successful right away, and he would have seen a lot of converts. But he understood something very clear, so he couldn't, he's not going to be burnt out, right? Because he understood that he wasn't responsible for that part, see? And I think this is just obvious. You know, look at verse 4 in your copy of God's Word, and I'll put it on the screen as well. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems to be seriously above our authority level, you know? I mean, to use the business language, I mean, the problem is above our pay grade, utterly, infinitely above our pay grade. Changing this. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 4 tells us Paul understood that he couldn't save anybody. On his own, he couldn't convince anybody to be saved. He couldn't reason them into salvation by his intellectual ability. Judson understood that too. He wasn't going to preach anti-Buddhism. He was just going to preach the word of God and let it go to work. See, he, Paul couldn't scare anybody into salvation by the threat of hell. See, He couldn't suck them in by an offer of comfort. See, all that's manipulating the word of God. All that's peddling the word of God. See, It's putting things out of order in order to make something very attractive and, and convince someone to make some decision that the word of God and God himself will, uh, have to accomplish. See, 
And I think this word veiled is a word worth uh, dwelling on for a few moments. We looked at it uh, a number of months ago. But here he says, um, if our gospel is veiled, and that's in perfect passive in the Greek, kekal lemonon. That just means that this is a completed action, completely covered, totally hidden, not by you, but done by someone else or something else. Now, we see this word used in Luke 8.16, so we can make clear that we've got it correct. Luke 8.16 uses the same word, present active. It says this, Now, no one after life... So that it puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. Now, you can see the substance here, right? Um, They've covered the light. It's completely obscured. In this case, it's the light of the testimony of the gospel, so it applies to our illustration remarkably well. Matthew follows that up in the statement in Matthew 5, verse 16. He says this. He says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So the idea, though, instead of uh, calypti, so that's a present active, Instead of covering it, instead of it being covered, instead of putting it under, uh, putting it under a container or under the bed so it's completely obscured, make sure that it shines in such a way that may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And another quick illustration, Peter uses this word in 1 Peter 4, 8. He says this, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love, mark this, this is our word, calypti, again, present active, covers a multitude of sins. And just as a footnote for behavior, and this is nice when you cross-reference and you get to have a little plug for what the church is supposed to look like, but what's Peter's command? Well, have a fervent love at work among believers. Why? Because the love Peter commands to be present and working in the church among people completely obscures offenses between people. So there's your, there's your word, cast in the positive. As you love one another, you will cover over those things. We remove, this is the idea, we remove the opportunity to be offended. It's not saying that sin should be rampant and that no one should care. We certainly have uh, discipline in the church that we are to follow through with. It hasn't, doesn't talk about any of that. It's, it isn't uh, taking that on a siding. It just means that we don't hang on to those things and we don't keep bringing up things that people have done to us. We don't allow offenses to trouble the family. See, above all, be fervent in your love for one another because love covers, see. So it's a pretty important word. Paul uses it here in perfect passive. And even if our gospel is veiled, see, he says it's veiled to those who are, and here's our next important word, perishing. Judson understood that. The nation of Burma was perishing, right? They, and lost people, that's what, that's what ends up. That's, what, that's the final resting place, see? If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, then your final destiny is death. Spiritual death and physical death. Physical death, of course, that's the reminder that spiritual death is on the way. Unremedied through Jesus, that's the final place for all who reject the gospel. So pretty important. If the gospel's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. These are people, apoluminoi, present middle, these are currently in a state of ruin. The Bible translates the word as perishing 33 times. The idea then is the gospel's veiled, it's veiled to those who are in a state of ruin. That's the current state of those who don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, a state of ruin. Ephesians 2.1 describes it, the condition this way, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So we get some, some context there about what Paul is speaking about. Colossians 1.21 says it this way, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. See, people think they have a relationship with God just by default. Hey, me and God are good. Don't worry about me and God. Scripture says that without Christ's intervention and you receiving the payment that was paid on your behalf, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. You are perishing, it says. You are alienated and hostile in mind towards God. Regardless of what you think about it, the Bible is clear about this is your actual position. So Paul understood that by his own resource then, he couldn't save anybody. That is infinitely above the pay grade of those who give out the gospel. Because they're in a state of death, and there's no way that you personally can deliver them from that state. See, participating in their own state of ruin, that's the idea with the middle. You're participating in that old state of ruin. What's that mean? Every sin that you do, everything that you do that's contrary to the Word of God, you participate in that. You show that that's your active relationship with God. You're in a state of ruin. And the gospel is completely obscured for them. How can you deliver someone from that? You, you can't. I can't, see. Some of you are coaches. 
And perhaps you have a guy on your team, especially the younger teams, they want to do every position in every play, right? You know these kids. He or she wants to be the one-man show. And they want to win really badly, right? And I mean, who doesn't want to win when you compete? And they get mad at other kids when they don't do as well as the one-man show thinks they should have done, right? Because outcome is everything, and when they lose, it's tough on them, particularly because they blame everyone and also take an inordinate amount of responsibility on themselves for the loss. So they want to control everything, right? You know these kids. And so maybe you were like that. And, and it took a while to realize that if there's one thing that sports teaches us, it's that we can't control everything. Some things are out of our control, right? I mean, you have a bunch of guys on the other side of the ball or, or the puck or the line or the circle or whatever, and they want a different outcome than you want. And, and physics is acting on everything, and we don't know all of those factors. So there, there's no way to control that. There's a lot of things that are out of control there. And really, it's a wonderful day when we took our focus off and perhaps this student takes their focus off trying to control everything and everyone and the outcome and be everywhere and begin to focus instead of control on personal effort and preparation themselves instead of focusing on everyone else everybody else's faults and why everybody else didn't do what they were supposed to do and, you know and, and it's your fault we didn't win and can't you be better and whatever and i'm i'm taking time, my bad everywhere that those kind of comments you know just taking an inordinate amount of responsibility for the loss see and of course helping our athletes begin to focus on doing their job to the best of their ability because if they're if they're focused all they're focused on is outcome see and that's that is all that matters then eventually, see, the temptation comes along to set aside fair play, set aside sportsmanship, set aside clean competitions to get an edge so that, that no one else has in order to manipulate the outcome, see, because that, that's the next step. That's why we see professional athletes do that, because it's all about them anyway, and if it's all about winning and it's all about them being in control of everything, then there's nothing wrong with them having a little edge nobody else has so they can make the outcome a little bit better, see. So that's the direction that goes, and th that's how it can be a ministry too. See, if a, if a man keeps his eyes on the outcome and thinks he can change all of that, and then the temptation comes along then to set aside the open, clear exposition of the truth in order to get the results that you want and that you think you need and that perhaps you think you deserve. Paul, as he reveals his heart, calls the minister back from all of that. If, if people are dead in their sins, see, if people are participating by their wicked deeds in their own destruction, and further, further, uh, verse 4, look there with me if you would, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. If that's the case too, then there's some things going on that are way out of our control, see? And before we move on, I think it's a footnote. Let's mark three things that are going on here with the unredeemed as we think about lasting ministry and a fulfilled life. Number one, the gospel is hidden from them. We saw that, right? Number two, they're perishing. That's their current condition. Dead, alienated. That's, those are the other words used. Number three, Satan has blinded their minds to understanding the gospel. So there's a whole other factor being involved here. The God of this world is actually blinding their minds to the gospel. So how effective can we be personally in all of that? We can't be, see? What can we do about all these things in the flesh? Nothing. So we have no control over the outcome on this plane, okay? So Paul says, we don't have to worry about the outcome and results. So he says this, look at verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. See, and here's Paul's really next two, seventh and eighth, if you're keeping track. Seventh and eighth keys to lasting ministry and a fulfilled life. Number seven, lasting ministry is a ministry without ego, see. And that's really that determining factor when you think it's all about you and, you know, it's my bad everywhere and, you know, you're the one who makes it have to happen and nobody else is as good as you. It's all about ego, isn't it? And, you know, I should be getting more response from what I'm doing than what I'm getting. That's all about ego. But lasting ministry is a ministry without ego, see? No matter whether the outcome is what we want or expect or surprisingly devoid of obvious results like Adoniram Judson, right? For six years, no converts. I suppose if he thought it was all up to him, That'd be pretty discouraging to him, right? If he perhaps thought that he was in charge of the outcome and it was him that was going to take the blinders off and he was going to be the one to rescue them from death and it was going to be he the one who removed the influence of the God of this world personally, then that would have been super discouraging to him. But it wasn't up to him, see? And that eighth one, lasting ministry and fulfilled life, come from a pattern of service, see? A pattern of service. 
Servanthood is a marked waypoint, just like all these other ones we talked about. You're setting your GPS. You want to make sure when you're out in the open ocean, you know which direction to go because it doesn't look the same in different times of the day. So you have these marked waypoints and you know which way to go to stay on course. That's what Paul's giving us here, see? One of them is, you know, ministry is, a, is lasting ministry is a ministry without ego, see? And, and next, lasting ministry fulfilled life is a life that has a pattern of service. It's the identity of those who have lasting ministry. It's done for Jesus' sake. The character trait of those who are on that path of lasting ministry and fulfilled life, they're servants. Just find somebody to minister to. Peter says, listen, if you're gonna be a good steward of the manifold grace of God, then minister one to another. Find somebody and minister to them, okay? This is a great pattern of behavior and one that Paul clears, clearly points here and says, listen, you wanna know how I was able to make it through difficult times? You wanna know how I was able to go through hard times and struggles? You know how I was able to shrug that kind of stuff off and just say, okay, Lord, you know, you know me, I have a clear conscience, I've done what I'm supposed to do. Well, how was I able to do that? Well, you know, I'm just gonna serve. I'm gonna give clearly and present over the long haul this ministry that the Lord's given to me of the gospel. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, really sums up both of these, those keys to lasting ministry, fulfilled life. Matthew 20, 25 says, but Jesus called them, he's talking to about his disciples, he called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you. Forget about how the whole structure works in the culture around you, okay? Because that's not how it's supposed to work here. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. So there you are, you got rid of ego and you, you started to be a servant, see? And just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Paul says, I've learned these lessons in my life. We're not in control of the outcome and we're not in control of the results, okay? Paul knows he can't bring any perishing person back. He can't give sight to blinded eyes and he can't give sight to blinded minds. They've been blinded by the God of this world. But instead of focusing on the outcome, Paul says, we have this ministry to do and that's the ministry of the new covenant and we can give it out boldly and it's not controlled by our ego and we're not trying to be on top or, and master of everything, see? Not ourselves. We're not trying to throw the pass and then run down feeling... You know, you got these kids, you want to throw the pass and then they run, run, run downfield and catch it and run it into the end zone, right? That's not how it works. We magnify Jesus. It's not about us. You know the ministry he's given us? Christ Jesus as Lord. That's the next part. We preach Christ Jesus as Lord, not ourselves. As through the proclamation of the new covenant, we're calling people to submit to Jesus and we're to boldly proclaim the message of repentance and submission and brokenness and denying yourself and your aspirations and your plans and bringing them all into submission to Christ. That's what salvation looks like, see? Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, see? That's a negative ego position, okay? You deny yourself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who'll save it. We're not in charge of the outcome, see? We're just given a very unpopular message. Take up your cross, follow Jesus, save your life, or you'll lose it. John chapter 12, he who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we give out this message. Why do we do that? Well, because we're told to do that. That's the job we've been given, see? We're not adequate, remember? Uh, part of one of the keys to being uh, successful in ministry is inadequacy, remember we went through all of that? That you're not adequate in yourself to do any ministry in your own flesh, but we're adequate to give out this message. We're told to do it, and then what happens? Well, usually at the least, we're made fun of as fools. And there are some who will hear this message and think me a fool, and I'm, I'm good with that because I'm in good company with those who have been thought of as fools as they give out the gospel. And perhaps ridicule in other parts of the world, perhaps greater prices to pay because nobody can respond to this message on their own. It's physically impossible for someone who's blinded and perishing to hear the word and respond on their own. Oh, if I change it and make it more palatable, if I manipulate the feelings, if I peddle it in some way to make it more attractive, there may be some superficial response, 
You know, if I seed some responses in the audience and then call for the response, and then that could be the catalyst for other people to respond. So you can manipulate it and perhaps get some success out of it temporarily. If people can still feel good about themselves when I'm all done teaching every time and just claim the benefits of Jesus, then maybe we can get results we deserve. See, but then we violated all the guidelines Jesus laid down for his followers. So something has to happen. So look at the next verse, verse 6. Your copy of God's word. It's in Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul says, listen, I was there too. Remember what we, t- we talked about Paul being the Pharisee? He was a master of hypocrisy, looking like he was good on the outside, but being full of filth on the inside. See, Paul understood that. And, and when the gospel came to life, he died and he realized he had to die. And, and then he wasn't sufficient in himself to keep the law. And he had to call on the mercy of God and say, Lord, save me. That's exactly what the Lord did. And so we get right here. He says, listen, this is what happened to me. God who said, for the God who said light shall shine out of the darkness is the one who's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that's our ninth key to lasting ministry. Now, uh, acknowledge that God is the one who accomplishes the transformation. See? Keys to lasting ministry or fulfilled life is understanding it is not all about you. And if it was all just about how much effort you put in, then everybody would be successful put in a lot of effort, but it's not about that, see? People who've come to the end of lasting ministry and have a fulfilled life have understood this key very, very well. They have left the results and the outcome up to him. And, and that's how you avoid burnout altogether, beloved, because oftentimes burnout is a result of unmet expectations or disappointment in a perceived outcome. You had some idea about th- how things were going to work out and you were disappointed in how they worked out. So you're just bummed. So you worked really hard. It doesn't seem like anything's being thrown back that shows that anything's working. And so you're just disappointed, see, because you had expectations that what you did was what was going to matter, see. And in some respects, the process is important because you have, uh, have to present a certain thing, right? Clearly, the Word of God over the long haul. Not manipulated by you, not peddled by you, just clearly teaching the Word of God, see? And if you've understood that you were inadequate to accomplish anything on your own flesh of any eternal value, and you've understood the real job you had to do, and you did it, see, then just like Judson, he didn't have any knowledge of some of the facets of how successful his ministry was when he died. He just struggled when it was difficult and stayed there when it was hard. Endured all kinds of sorrow and suffering, see? But if you don't have, it doesn't all have to be about you and you don't have to see the outcome, you have to try to control it somehow, see? And then God doesn't have to show you when he turns the light on. And he doesn't have to show you the final outcome here on earth, see? Because back in the first day of creation, Genesis 1-3 tells us, and that's what Paul refers to, God said, let there be light, and it flicked on and off for a few times. No. What happened? God said, let there be light, and there was. And the Lord said it was good, right? And that's the idea. If he can turn the lights on in the universe, then he can turn the lights on in the hearts of men and women. And he can remove the veil, and he can overrule the God of this world, and only he can do that, and only he can make blind minds see. What you have a job to do is you have this ministry and you don't lose heart because you've just received mercy and you just give it out consistently over the long haul. You just let the Lord work all of that out, see? And I've told you this a dozen times. I don't know what the Lord's doing in this church any more than I've known what the Lord's doing in any other church the Lord's allowed me to pastor. He's working in your hearts in some certain way. And I'm glad for that because when the word of God goes out, it's active and it does its job, see? But the response may be negative, the response may be harsh, the response may be welcoming. There's all kinds of stuff going on, all kinds of dynamic, and I'm not in charge of that. I'm just in charge of this. And then you're in charge of whatever I give you, see? And the Holy Spirit applies it as he sees fit, either to hard hearts in judgment or to hearts that are open that receive it, see? But I don't have to worry about throwing the pass and running down the field and catching it and then doing the you know, touchdown dance. I don't have to do any of that. All I have to do is just deliver what the kitchen prepared as a servant, as a galley slave, to the congregation and try not to spill it and mess it up. See? Now, we, we taught through this passage in 1 Corinthians 1.26. This is a dynamic I want you to remember, okay? And we're going to wrap up here in just a second. 
First Corinthians 126 says, for consider your calling, brethren, and we know what that is. We've gone over it num numerous times, okay? That you've been given this job to do and you know what the calling is and you're supposed to be following through with it. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh and not many mighty and not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. So here, here's the dynamic, okay? You've got people who are dead and blind, okay? We see that. You've got a message that's offensive and a stumbling block and sounds like foolishness. And the commission to carry the message was given to less than optimal staffing, right? <laughs> not many noble, not many mighty, according to the flesh. Foolish things of the world to shame the wise, okay? So don't aspire to any any position, all right, don't imagine yourself somehow, well, I'm, I'm that minority of the wise and the mighty or whatever, okay? Just, just take your calling, let the word of God work through you, right? Because power is found what? In weakness. Effectiveness is found through just doing what the Lord said and letting, the, letting him have the results and him control the outcome, right? So, verse 30 and 31 says this, but by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus, by his doing. See, not many mighty, not many noble. By his doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who came to us, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it's written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's what the Lord wants, right? Not that you covered all the bases and you made it all happen. It was all by your power. You, know, you controlled the outcome and all the plays. And you, you, know, you, you, know, you, took, you took an inordinate responsibility, amount of responsibility on whatever loss there might have been. Listen. It's by his doing that anyone is in Christ. See? Last illustration will close for the day. I think the, mo the one that applies most to now, especially in the, in the age of the marketable church. Matthew chapter 13, verse 3. It's one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite passages in the Word of God. Right, along, right around Matthew 13, Luke 12. The parable passages are some of my favorite. I was talking to one of my sons the other day. He said, what's your favorite, what's your favorite passage in all of, you know, all the Bible? And I was like, man, I don't really, I have a whole bunch. He's like, come on, Dad. I mean, you know, the top of your top 10. Well, maybe Romans 116. But I mean, it really depends on what time of year it is because it depends on where I am in the Bible during that part of the year because I have a bunch of favorites just kind of depending on what I'm working through. You're probably like that as well. This is one of my favorites. Here it is. And he spoke many things to them in parables saying, behold, the sower went out to sow and he sowed some seed and he sowed and as he sowed rather, some seeds fell beside the road and the birds came out and ate them up. And others fell on the rocky places where they didn't have much soil and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched because they had no root and they withered away. And number seven, uh, verse seven, others fell among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked them out. And verse eight, and others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. Now, Jesus is using an earthly story to give some information about the kingdom, and he does that often, and those are really wonderful things to read and to begin to, to determine what actually the meaning is and kind of pull away the meat. And his disciples, of course, were like, whoa, and you know, they're like, they're thinking about it, and then they get with him privately, can you explain it to us, and all that, and it's so great. So we get both sides. We get the parable, and then we get the disciples pulling him aside and giving the explanation, so we're really in a benefit position. So Jesus is using this earthly story, gives some information about the kingdom. Now it's clear from the story that we have one sower. Okay, the sower went out to sow, and we have one kind of seed, and we have four different results. And, and what were the results based on according to the parable? The soil, the circumstances of the soil, right? That's just obvious, right? Some fell on a hard packed road, and some among the rocks, and some among the thorns, and some in tilled ground, right? Okay. Now, according to verses 19 to 23, which you won't look at because of time, but you can look at them on your own. Well, what is the seed? Well, Jesus was clear. It's the word of the kingdom. That's the gospel. That's the new covenant to use words we've been using. And the sower, well, he's the one giving out the good news, okay, uh, following the command of the Great Commission uh, to use, again, terminology we've been using. This is the one who is confident in their calling, 
okay? This is the one who has this ministry to do, so they're not discouraged. This is the one who doesn't lose heart, the one who doesn't preach himself, but Jesus is Lord. This is the one who doesn't peddle and adulterate the word of God. Uh, These are all the words that apply to this person, okay? The one who relentlessly, consistently, faithfully presents scriptural truth clearly, plainly over the long haul. That's that person, okay? And the soil, what's that? Well, it represents the hearts of men and women, according to Jesus as he explains the parable. These are the ones who are, to use the words we've been using, perishing and blinded. These are the ones who are dead in their sin, the ones who are alienated, the ones to whom the gospel is veiled completely from them because of the God of this world. That's those guys, okay? Now, if experts commented on church growth and they had written this story, it would be quite a bit different, okay? So there would be four sowers, there would be one soil, sower one, his technique had very poor results, Sower number two, his technique had some results. Sower number three, it had some results, but nothing really great. And sower number four, he had the right technique and he got good results. But is the story about technique? Is it talking at all about how he threw the seed out or anything? No, not at all. What's it talking about? It's talking about soil, right? There's only one seed and that's the gospel, and we're told to present it plainly and clearly. And there's only one way you can sow it, see? You tell it, relentlessly, consistently, faithfully presenting scriptural truth clearly and plainly over the long haul. That's what you do. You're just, you just consistently going about the sowing, see? But again, if Church Growth Experts wrote the story, then, then it all has to do with knowing your consumers, right? And, and, and overcoming their hesitation by creating the right environment and being a good salesperson, see? The problem is, as soon as you've done that, you've ceased being a galley slave taking what the Lord has prepared and bringing it to the table, and you started being a huckster, see? You started peddling it instead of just teaching it. And if you know the keys to lasting ministry, you'll know that you can't overcome consumer hesitation no matter what you do. Why? Because the hesitation is so deep, it's buried in them, and they are dead, okay? And they're alienated and they're blind and the gospel's hidden from them. And that is an inherited condition and they inherited it from Adam. You can't solve that no matter what you do personally in the flesh. There's no fixing that condition. And there's no way you can manipulate and control that outcome. And again, you can't throw that pass and run down into the end zone and catch it and do your celebratory touchdown dance. It's not going to be you, okay? And it may not be immediately when you do the faithfulness over the long haul. Just like Judson, you may not even know what happened later, see? Because you're not responsible for that and the Lord hasn't given you the right to know it all the time. He just says, look, just do this. You want to have faithful long-term ministry? You want to have a fulfilled life? Just do these simple things. Make these your waypoints. If you lose your way, which we're going to see next week, you know, sometimes we're perplexed. So that's the idea of not knowing which way to go, but we're not discouraged, why? Because there is a plan, right? You don't know maybe right now what you need to do next, but you do know over the long haul what you have to do, right? So you can't manipulate it, you can't do any of that. All we can do is, verse five, not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservant. But until God says, let there be light, or causes the soil of the heart to be ready to receive the seed and spring up and produce fruit that will last, there will be no eternal change, beloved. No eternal change. And so I ask you as we close, are you on the path to lasting ministry? Are you on a path to a fulfilled life? You're going to have to be about the task. Romans 10, 14 says, How then will they call on him, that's Jesus, in whom they have not believed? They're not going to. Their eyes have been blinded. Their mind is blinded. They can't call on him if they haven't believed. How will they believe in him who they've not heard? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, right? And here we go. How will they hear without a preacher? You've got seed, the word of God, soil that the Lord may or may not have prepared yet around you, you just sow, right? So again, our emphasis as the Lord's brought us back to it is about the Great Commission, about focusing on things that 
our most important in ministry. And so my encouragement to you then is allow those things to work their way into your fabric of your life. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you often for that, Lord. And it's not, we don't want that to just be something we always say as part of our prayer time, but from our own heart, as we study your word each day, uh, we want to give you thanks. Help us to be thankful people that you have not left this in the dark, that you've been clear about uh, how you've equipped us and what we're to do. It's not it shouldn't be strange to us to hear this. We, we were glad we won't get to the end of our life and found that we were supposed to live a different way, but you didn't tell us. You're very clear about that. And you've empowered us by your Holy Spirit to do these things and given us your word of God, which is complete and is, is uh, made to equip us for every good work. And so, Father, as we read these things and as we understand what they say, help us to apply them. You know the application, Father, to each individual here. Perhaps there are some here today who've never received your son as, as your gift of salvation, as the sacrifice he paid on the cross. It doesn't come automatically to us. It has to be a denying of self, a coming and repenting. It's to say the same thing about our sin as you have said. Confessing, repenting, turning from those things, desiring that we not do them anymore. It's our desire not to be like that anymore. We don't want to be your enemies at odds with you, perishing, dead in our sin, calling out to you to save us. You gladly will. You can confess Jesus as Lord right now. That means he came and did what he said he'd come and do. He is all that he said he is, and he is in charge. You're willing for him to be in charge, not you. You want your sins to be forgiven, not so you can escape hell, although that is one of the benefits of having your sin forgiven, but so that you can come into a right relationship with God who made you and desires to have a relationship with you and has given his son as a sacrifice for you. Confess your sins. Confess Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead. He went to the cross, took your sin, paid for the wrath of God that should have fallen on you, paid for it with his own life and has offered you salvation through his blood. Confess that right now where you sit. If you've done that before you go today, let us rejoice with you. Take that card from in front of you in the chair. And fill that out. Tell us that you received Christ as your Savior today. Give that to me before you leave. Let me pray with you, encourage you, and get you on that road, being discipled and learning what it means to be a believer. It would be our joy to do that. And for those of you who know Christ as your Savior, uh, this understanding of the sanctification process that the Lord wants to do is still at work until we see him. And so this is polishing and the removing of place, things that uh, are not pleasing and the changing of behavior. These are all things the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish in you. He uses his word uh, to do this. And so may you listen and respond accordingly. Open our hearts to do that, Father, as we prayed earlier. Your Holy Spirit is welcome here to do your work. We know that your word is powerful and quick and sharp as a two-edged sword and pierces and divides soul and spirit, joint and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Lord, we are so grateful for that. Be at work through it, I pray. Pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.